Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Work With Purpose, a podcast about the Australian public service. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. Before we begin today's episode, I would like to pay my respects to the traditional custodians of the land on which we broadcast today, the Ngunnawal people, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and future, and pay my respects also for the ongoing contribution that they make to the life of our city and region. Today, it's Work With Purpose, a global perspective special edition where we feature the Australian Centre for International Agriculture Research, and it will be hosted by Andrew Campbell, who is the CEO of that organisation. The discussion is focused on some of the fascinating work that Australians are undertaking overseas, where we are assisting communities in innovative ways. The conversation does touch on how their work has been affected by the pandemic in this particularly unusual year. I'm sure you will enjoy it and I'm so grateful to Andrew and the team that we can feature the great work that is done by the Australian Centre for International Agricultural Research that really just shows the impact that the Australian Public Service is having beyond our borders. Please enjoy. Good morning, everyone. It's fantastic here. Uh, My name's Andrew Campbell. I'm the Chief Executive of ACR, the Australian Centre for International Agricultural Research. And today I think this suits the work with purpose theme of the IPA podcast series extremely well because we're talking about an agency that many people may not have heard of, ACR, that's doing amazing work with purpose primarily in our, across our region, the Indo-Pacific region, to help low- and middle-income countries in our region improve their food security, their food system resilience. Uh, I'm joined today by three of the research program managers in ACR, uh, Dr Robin Johnson, who looks after our water programs, Dr Anna O'Kello, who looks after our livestock programs, and Dr Anne Fleming, who looks after our fisheries program. Um, We have 10 programs, so there's just three of our RPMs here today. But we hope we can give you an insight into some of the amazing work that Australian scientists are doing in our region, uh, sharing Australian expertise in partnership with in-country partners. And, of course, uh, this is uh, very challenging work at the best of times. We've been operating since 1982 uh, and our scientists have been doing amazing work across the region and now we find ourselves disrupted as never before with obviously uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. And given that our work involves an enormous amount of travel, we've had to respond uh, fairly um, radically uh, across all our programs and we'll touch on those responses as the discussion goes. Um, but first I might get uh, uh, Anna to talk about how COVID-19 uh, arose essentially as an issue in food systems as a zoonotic disease and what that means for uh, how we're operating but also how we might need to um, reform our programs in future. Thanks, Andrew. So for sure, um, 
you know, COVID-19 is an example of a zoonotic disease that what we call spills over from animal animal reservoirs into, into humans. COVID is not the first disease, even in the 21st century, for this to have happened. Uh, many people may have remembered the SARS pandemic back in the early 2000s was another example of a coronavirus similar to COVID-19 where, where this has happened before and spilled over. So I think the really interesting thing here is that our agri-food systems are the interface between human health and agriculture and ACR is, has been doing a lot of work for many years looking at the interface of these two systems and I guess people always think well obviously things that we grow and food that we eat has an impact on human health. Many people may not realise the number of what we call foodborne diseases or it was a diseases that come from animals that are also really important and, and things that ACR has to think about when we design some of our research programs. So for the, ACR has always um, funded quite a lot of research in food safety. For example, we've been working with the International Livestock Research Institute for over 10 years now, looking at food systems research in Vietnam um, and trying to work out what are really the risks, not just from a biophysical perspective in terms of you know diseases spilling over, but if we do things to um, you know, make interventions in these food systems to make them safer, what are the impacts on not just the people that eat the food, but also the people that whose livelihoods depend on, on selling that food and growing that food. So we've been working in the, in the pork system there. So Anna, what sort of things are Australian scientists doing with partners overseas to try and prevent future zoonotic diseases? So we've got a really interesting program that is co-funded between ACR and the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trades Indo-Pacific Centre for Health Security, which is really a One Health research program where we're working with a number of partners in Australia, including Menzies, the Burnett Institute, um, CSIRO and and Nossal Institute um, out of University of Melbourne. Um, and th these scientists are working in partnership with uh, researchers in Indonesia, Fiji, Cambodia, Laos, a number of countries to really look at some of these you know, big One Health issues. So, for example, antimicrobial resistance in Fiji. There's a great partnership going on there between CSIRO and, and the Fiji Ministry of Health and Agriculture to look at the, the risk of, of diseases coming from, from pathogens in, in those food systems. Uh, Nossal Institute, for example, is working with the uh, Cambodian government, looking at how do we really strengthen the veterinary systems in, in countries like Cambodia and Laos, because without strong veterinary systems, the human health system system can also not be strong if we don't know where these diseases are coming from. And the Menzies Institute is working with the Indonesian government to really look at zoonotic malaria, which is a, a new emerging problem in Indonesia. So I think these are all examples of ways in which Australian researchers are working on more of the preventative side of things, looking at the health system strengthening in these countries, which strong systems overseas also mean strong systems back here in Australia. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. We fund Australian scientists to work in partnership with scientists from our uh, countries in the region, in the Pacific, and our near neighbours. Uh, but many times uh, they learn things in those projects that then uh, have benefit back here in Australia. Um, one of the areas uh, where that's happening, certainly, um, and is around fish ladders where we've taken science that, uh, that was being applied here in the Murray-Darling Basin and then developed it in much more challenging context in the Mekong. Do you want to talk about the fish ladder work in Laos? Yeah, thanks, Andrew. Yes, it's one of the significant uh, projects in my program. Uh, 
of, as people, most people would know, in the Mekong. It's a massive, one of the most significant rivers in the world, and the, the diversity and volume of fish that, that supplies poor people across Southeast Asia is um, incredible, and not only for food security, but also for income. For I think some of those countries, 60% of all protein consumed by people is fish out of the river. Exactly, exactly. We're just starting to learn about the importance of fish as, as nutrition and um, moving towards eating more fish, but these countries have been eating fish for, for hundreds of years and, and very much depend on it as their major source of protein. So what happens to those fish when you stick a big dam in the middle of the river? Well, it's dams are great for, um, and yes, we've got we're working on uh, huge hydroelectric dams that have been established in the Mekong, Teng for Lao, two already established. But there's also the small, low-level dams, just three metres high. They're the weirs, the floodgates, the regulators that are, are positioned to control the movement of water from the Mekong through the tributaries into the wetlands. And so both, both types of barriers stop fish from migrating, which means that they can't get to their, their breeding grounds, which means that uh, the regulators are great for controlling rice production, but there's this impact that's now being realised that this highly important source of protein is being compromised. Mm -hmm. And so the Australian scientists are working on uh, fish ladders to help the fish swim upstream past the dams yep, and, yep. and also to get back down through the dam both without getting ways. squashed. They have to move both ways. And so what is really exciting is that we're using the knowledge that we've developed in Australia, working on the, the Murray-Darling Basin and applying that, that, that knowledge, that technology to help our partners overcome this problem. So it's both um, fish ladders, which actually allow uh, fish to navigate uh, through upstream, but also the putting in uh, mechanisms to allow them to migrate downstream as well through the through the floodgate systems. We were lucky enough last year to visit the one on the Zaiburi Dam uh, in in Laos and the Mekong, and uh, literally hundreds of millions of dollars have been spent building the biggest fish ladder in the world. And to give people an idea of the size, there's more concrete in the fish ladder than there is in the MCG. Uh, so this is a very large engineering structure uh, and we've had to invent new methods to detect how the fish are, whether they're going past or not with electronic tags and other things. Yeah, it's an exciting piece of work. The, the size of that dam, as you and I saw, it's, it's hard to fathom the, and, the, and the size of this fish ladder is, hmm. is incredible. And the, the challenge is that uh, our commissioned organisation, Charles Sturt University, has developed or is developing totally new techniques to tag fish in the Mekong and, and this is different size fish from huge, half, well potentially half tonne right down to 10 centimetres and even that, how to tag fish of diverse sizes and species and then place them upstream and then how to set up the technologies within those that massive fish ladder to pick up the movement and then assess 
how effective that fish ladder is in allowing fish to reach their, their mm. breeding grounds. Um, it, it struck me when we were there that um, Professor Lee Baumgartner from Charles Sturt Uni, who's uh, probably reasonably well-known in Wagga but not a household name across Australia, uh, is actually doing incredibly important work overseas that, that will will make uh, an amazing contribution in, in those countries if it's successful. Yes, yes, and his, his, his team and himself, they've got... Uh, uh, they're in hot demand across Southeast Asia, mm. Africa, Indonesia, um, and he's an incredible scientist, not only for his technical expertise, but his ability to work with our partners, which is a, a key skill in itself. Which reminds me of another one, um, in fact, invented here in Canberra. We have uh, uh, a gizmo called the chameleon for measuring how much water is in the soil. Robin, do you want to talk a bit about that and how it's being applied in, in Africa and potentially soon closer to home? Thanks, Andrew. Um, so Australia, as you know, is, um, water management is becoming more and more important. Australia is moving very much to precision agriculture approaches where we monitor and measure very carefully the amount of water that goes on in irrigation. But those sorts of technologies are quite expensive and haven't really been available in the developing world. So Richard Sturziker from CSIRO in Canberra has been working on simple, low-cost approaches for farmers um, in the developing world to, to measure and monitor the amount of water and nutrients that they put onto their crop during irrigation. And he's using a system which reads out as, uh, as coloured lights so that the farmers get an immediate feedback in terms that are meaningful for them um, of what the water status is. So a, a red light tells them their soil is, is very dry and needs watering green it's moving into um, a, a drier phase, blue, no need to water. And so Richard's been working very much along the lines of um, working with farmers to learn about how to use water most effectively. And the wonderful thing about it is that the savings in water um, not only benefit the farmer and the environment, but they also translate to savings in labour. If you've got a, less, uh, got a water less often, then you've got more time to do other things on the farm or to, for other um, income-generating activities. So this is an example where Australia, operating in a very dry but extremely variable climate, has had to develop agricultural technologies for managing that variable climate that are now uh, in much more demand overseas as other countries find that their own seasons are becoming less predictable and, and more extreme. Um, do you want to talk more broadly about irrigation schemes and some of our water basin management work that, um, that where Australian science is helping, say, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh and also the Mekong countries? So one of the other areas we're working in is the Eastern Gangetic Plain, the area where India, Bangladesh and Nepal come together, which is one of the most densely populated agricultural areas in the world. And under, because it's a low-lying delta area, under increasing threat from climate change. So um, food security there is an enormous issue. And um, we've been working in that area around the questions. It, it's Because it's a monsoonal area, uh, there's abundant water during the wet season and 
water is much harder to come by during the dry season. So we've been working across a range of scales on approaches to allow farmers to get a second or a third crop to increase food availability. Um, so at, at the farm level, we've been taking the sorts of approaches that um, Australia's been developing over the last 50 years for conservation agriculture, which both increases productivity, reduces inputs and, and saves water. Um, and at the bigger scale, we've been looking, um, using Australia's expertise in surface water and groundwater conjunctive management to look at how groundwater plays into water availability in that area. And then CSIRO's been um, translating our experience with basin scale management to look at how water can be shared across countries and across sectors. So in essence, our our scientific expertise and the depth of our expertise in, in food production but also in managing challenging environments is a strategic asset for Australia as we interact with our partner countries across the region because they're all facing similar challenges of how we continue to produce food more sustainably in more difficult environments. Yeah, very much so. I think Two of the advantages um, Australia has, one is that we're used to working in water-scarce environments, but the other, oddly, is that we're used to working in data-scarce environments. So a lot of the expertise that would come in from Europe or America, they've got, they're used to having much more abundant information, whereas Australian science has got very good at um, making the best of a limited set of information and, and being able to use that most productively. And also in Europe, the US, Japan, uh, there's a much higher level of agricultural subsidies, which means that farmers have more money. Uh, and again, in Australia, perversely, it's an asset for us that our agriculture is not subsidised. And so we've had to come up with with miserly ways of uh, of improving the system that aren't that farmers can afford to implement without subsidies. Yeah, and those low input systems are very important in the developing world. And many of our listeners may not realise, but a big proportion of the world's food is actually grown by smallholder farmers, 500 million smallholder farmers who themselves are among the poorest people in the world, some of them actually landless. And so a big part of our work is working with the poorest of the poor to help them produce more food for themselves as well as for their uh, communities and to manage their animals and their resources in, uh, uh, in the best way possible. Anna, do you want to talk about some of the animal health work, um, small-scale animal health work that, that your program has been doing and, and the, the way that feeds into biosecurity and, and risks to humans? Yeah, absolutely. So I think maybe some things that, that many people may not realise around livestock when they think of livestock in a high-income country scenario is that livestock in low-middle-income country settings actually play a large range of roles. Yes, it's a contribution to food and food security, particularly through meat, um, milk, eggs. Um, but livestock are actually, um, you know, they, they act as a bank for people. They're their social security. If people need to, you know, pay for hospital fees, 
cheese, for example. They'll, they'll sell a pig. Livestock are really liquefiable assets. So a lot of the work that we do in the livestock program is not just around how do we produce more livestock, um, but really trying to recognise the really diverse role of livestock in and these sort of livelihoods. Too. Sorry? Cultural as well. And cultural as well, you know. Um, so I think it's been really interesting. With, there's a, been a disease spreading through Asia, a uh, region called African Swine Fever, the last um, bit more than a year. Um, where We've been dealing with governments in a lot of our partner countries how to manage this disease. It's a disease of pigs. It kills the pigs outright. Uh, there's no vaccine for it at the moment. So really a, a large amount of the protein uh, through people eating pork has dropped out of the system in countries like Vietnam, China, Laos, uh, Myanmar. Um, and then closer to home in countries like Timor-Leste and Papua New Guinea, um, where people may not necessarily eat pigs, but they're really valuable culturally. Um, really, how do we capture all the different impacts of a disease like African swine fever, not just in terms of food security, people not having that, that pork to eat, but you know, someone not having the money or, or the gift when, when someone dies, for example, to give at the funeral or when their child has to go to school. You know, so we, if, when you have livestock disease, you see a lot of sort of um, multiplier effects on the communities. Uh, you know, p- weddings don't happen, for example. Kids can't go to school. People can't pay for their out-of-pocket healthcare costs. So, uh, yeah, a lot, of the, a lot of the research we're doing around African swine fever, for example, is more about not just necessarily how do we control the disease and biosecurity mes- messaging and all that sort of thing, but what is the impact on the livelihoods that this is having? On biosecurity, there are a number of APS agencies who, who work on biosecurity, particularly at the border. Would you like to comment on how uh, our work pre-border helps Australia's biosecurity? Absolutely. If you think of biosecurity, it's, it's pre-border biosecurity and then border, so post-border um, biosecurity, which is where, you know, the X-ray machines at the airports and that sort of thing. And then we have post-border, which is everything that happens inside Australia. So ACR works very much on this pre-border part of the equation. We work with the Department of Agriculture, Water and Environment. Uh, also, they have a pre-border program and, and also their Northern Australian Quarantine Service. Uh, we also work with DFAT, again, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Uh, in Timor-Leste and, and Papua New Guinea, we've got good examples of, you know, this sort of cross-agency collaboration where, you know, we have many meetings with DFAT and, and the Department of Agriculture around how do we offer, how do we pool our resources here in Australia to best offer the assistance to, to governments in Timor-Leste and Papua New Guinea and we've been doing that with African swine fever um, fall armyworm is, a, is another example, there, there's different types of, of biosecurity issues but I think it's a really good example of how Australian government agencies, we, we do talk to each other, we work together, we pool our resources and find out, okay, who's, who's best placed to help with these things And in, in some cases it's through ACR projects that Australian scientists get to work on diseases overseas and we'd much prefer that they're working on them overseas than waiting until they get to Australia. So um, I'm a forester originally and we have Australian foresters working on diseases of eucalypts and acacias in Vietnam and we'd certainly prefer that they work on them there than, than wait till they get here. In the past we've had uh, Queensland scientists working on fusarium wilt in bananas uh, in uh, the Philippines and elsewhere. And then, very luckily for Australia, uh, one of those scientists spotted what he thought was the same thing on a farm in Queensland, and it turned out they were able to stop that uh, 
potentially could have destroyed the Australian banana crop, but they were able to quarantine one farm and stop it in its tracks. But only because that scientist was able to recognise it very early because they'd been working on it overseas. And I think we've had a similar story uh, with Newcastle disease in chickens, haven't we, Anne? But any, Absolutely. Any, and um, I, think, I think they're really uh, good examples of how, you know, capacity building, we do a lot of capacity building in ACR, but not, not just in, the, in our partner countries. We also build capacity of our own researchers. Um, and, you know, I think if COVID has shown us uh, nothing else, diseases don't respect national boundaries. And the more we can work in partnership to address, you know, swiftly moving diseases around our region, such as African swine yeah. fever, fall armyworm, you know, both Australia benefits from that as well as our partners. And every now and again, we have a project overseas that's a bit experimental that yields potentially significant benefits uh, for us. And I was thinking here of uh, work in the Philippines on blast fishing and how do you get coral reefs to come back after blast fishing that now looks like it might come back to the Great Barrier Reef. Do you want to talk about that, Anne? Yeah, another uh, really exciting piece of work. So blast fishing, dynamite fishing, has, has damaged reefs in, in the Philippines, plus, of course, coral bleaching, uh, climate change impacts. And again, uh, coral reefs uh, uh, support fish populations, and fish, po fish is very important for Philippine people in terms of income for poor coastal communities and, um, and food security. So... We've got a fantastic team at Southern Cross University working on the Great Barrier Reef and at the same time working in the Philippines on trying to develop techniques of sexual-based um, uh, restoration where the natural spawn from, from the, the coral, which I think m many people would have heard how this occurs in the full moon and first week of March, uh, or somewhere similar, and you can collect that spawn. It's floating on the surface of the sea. You have to go out there at night. And the work is to develop the technologies to collect that at a scale that can then be used as a resource to take back down to those, those damaged coral reefs and then support them to grow and restore the coral reefs. So there's a whole lot of different technologies at each of those steps that um, the team is developing both at the Great Barrier Reef but that fantastic knowledge exchange and application. It actually started in the Philippines and has now been applied to Great Barrier Reef but, of course, technologies are, are both ways now. And the interesting re recent development that we'll be moving into is to hone in on those coral species that are actually heat tolerant and so that as climate change becomes... Um, a greater problem and see uh, temperatures rise, we'll actually have selected the corals that will be able to better cope with those, those high temperatures conditions. Mm. Yes, when we develop partnerships with our partner countries, of course, we spend a lot of time discussing with them what their priorities are. And in the 30-something countries that ACR works with, climate change is priority one, two or three in every single country uh, that we work in. Um, so, Robin, I know it's no longer your area, but you might want to mention the, some of the work that we're doing to help countries understand their agricultural emissions and to quantify the opportunity because although low and middle income countries uh, 
agriculture is not a huge contributor to global emissions, within those countries, usually the agriculture sector is one of their more important um, contributors. And and they are interested in finding out where are the opportunities to benefit. And Anna, you might want to mention the work on livestock emissions um, and ensuring that we get more accurate data around that. So Australia's put quite a lot of effort into systems to um, measure and validate greenhouse gas emissions from different land sectors. And... um, in some of the countries we work with, although, as Andrew says, they may not be major emissions in, um, in global terms, it can still be an important pathway for support for changing systems, um, both to improve productivity and reduce emissions at the same time from the agricultural sector. So we've been working with um, initially Fiji and Vietnam through the University of Melbourne and uh, University of Queensland to take our expertise on on, um, estimating and validating uh, emissions from agricultural um, from the agricultural sector to help those countries be able to report accurately um, against the Paris commitments uh, for what's called their nationally determined contributions. The point of doing that is is twofold. One is that it enables them to tap into some of the global funding mechanisms to reduce their emissions, but it has a secondary but quite important benefit that it just gives them a better basis for understanding their agricultural statistics generally. So that's an interesting piece of work that's just starting to develop. And um, particularly... Uh, you know, livestock are often in the gun uh, in greenhouse gas debates, Anna, but uh, in, in some cases this is a problem of people assuming that all livestock are the, are the same and there's a big difference between a, a Kansas feedlot and a Maasai herder. Exactly, Andrew, and this is a message that I've been... You know, me and others have been trying to portray for, for, for a long time. I mean, like Robin said... You know, agriculture is is a significant contributor to emissions in many of the countries we work in. But but if you break that down, livestock is is usually more than fifty percent of those agricultural emissions. So, um, a lot of the work that we've been trying to do in the livestock program is is capture when when we're trying to improve productivity of livestock from a livelihoods perspective or a food security perspective. You know, what are we trying to do? We're trying to feed them better food. We're trying to control disease so it doesn't spill over to humans. We're trying to control disease so animals can produce better. All those things, the the third win of that is the potential that better fed animals, better produced animals actually um, emit less uh, less emissions on a per head basis. So when we say, okay, we're going to improve these systems, make them more efficient and trying to market that, I guess, to, to from the greenhouse gas perspective, we need very accurate ways of measuring those emissions reductions. And and like Robin said, the, one of the bigger problems we've got with many low middle income countries is that the, the, the inventory systems for measuring those emissions aren't sensitive enough and like like Australia we have a tier 3 emissions um, inventory we're using some of the people that have been developing those systems here in Australia to work with our partner countries to move them from a tier 1 to a tier 2 emissions inventory yeah. so and, um, this is an area where through our emissions reduction fund and the carbon farming initiative uh, indigenous savanna burning programs Australia is actually a world leader in uh, 
in managing emissions in the land sector. And in fact, next year we take on the global chair role of the uh, uh, Global Research Alliance on Agricultural Greenhouse Gases. And one of the reasons for that is because our science is is so um, well recognised and well respected across across the world. So this is an area where Australia is making a leading contribution across our region and helping um, helping many countries to both understand uh, their profile, but also identify where they can profitably tackle it. Uh, and when we have industry like the Australian red meat sector setting itself a, a carbon neutral by 2030 target, it means that we actually have many leading producers that we can showcase the work on farm that's happening in Australia. And that's of great interest in partner countries. And again, noting that that, that hasn't been driven by agricultural subsidies, but by farmers just wanting to produce much more efficiently. Um, I'm going to uh, discuss now a, a very high priority for the Australian aid program and noting that my boss, the Minister for Foreign Affairs, is also the Minister for Women, um, and that is gender equality across all our work. And um, I'm going to ask each of you to talk about some of the work within your own programs that's about women's empowerment, and I'll talk more, more broadly um, uh, about it. But Anne, would you like to talk about some of our work in the Pacific? Uh... Yes, that's came to my mind, Andrew. Thank you. Um, yes, we've got an interesting or well, long term project to support women in the Pacific to uh, produce pearl handicrafts. So, not the round pearls that we're all used to, but what's called a marbe pearl or a half pearl that is much easier to produce. The technology is more simple, so it's much more appropriate for coastal communities and particularly women actually farm the oysters uh, in Tonga, Fiji, uh, PNG. And other women or, or the same people in that village will then craft that into a piece of jewellery and because of the tourism that used to go to the Pacific and hopefully will return not too far into the future, there's a really strong demand for, for a piece of um, artefact that is actually locally made and encompasses the local culture. So, and, um, and that's particularly strong in Tonga. They've got a long history of carving whalebone and wood. So actually the men are engaged in this work in Tonga and they're producing beautiful, high-quality pieces of work. Not only high-quality, but also the trinket trade, which is, you know, volumes and that will produce more benefits for more people uh, and particularly for people that aren't necessarily highly skilled so that it's an opportunity that that is very diverse and particularly it we've found that uh, the benefits to women are not only that that benefit through income but the the social connection and the sense of independence and pride that they can contribute to their household income or to their community as a whole for for so we're not just talking about more food in people's bellies, we're talking about improving their overall livelihoods, their, their economic opportunities, their access to resources and decision-making. Yes, exactly. It's, it's not only the economic benefits, but also the ability to make their own decisions about their own lives, which is, is um, important to everyone. If I can come in there. Um, 
women's empowerment is really deeply embedded in everything we do at all sorts of levels. But one of the things that I find really uh, rewarding and important in the work we do is that we work with a lot of researchers from developing countries. And this gives us an opportunity to particularly give opportunities to women researchers who might otherwise find it quite difficult to to get that next step um, in their in their national systems, so it's really great to have women PhD students, um, women officers from uh, agricultural agencies who come out in the field with us, and it does allow us as well to work more deeply with the women farmers because very often the extension systems are all about the men. By taking more women into the field, we can get a better sense of how the women are contributing there. And, and, you know, women are basically half the agricultural workforce, so it's an important area. And so we've developed a new uh, program for women's leadership uh, and management skills across the agricultural research sector. And when I say agriculture, I mean fisheries and forestry and climate and water and everything else, nutrition, uh, called the Merrill Williams Fellowship. And uh, our minister put out a terrific video about that only uh, last week. Uh, and that's that's again helping to develop new women leaders right across our region and uh, and building their linkages with Australia so uh, just to wrap up I think we've we've had a few little examples of how Australia's depth and breadth of expertise in science is a terrific soft power asset for us in our relationships across the region as many countries strive to tackle some of the same problems that that we've been wrestling with in Australia uh, over um, many, many years. But it's extremely rewarding work and just another example of the rich diversity of things that the APS is doing uh, right around the world. Thank you. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Andrew. So there you have it, a great conversation with between Andrew Campbell, Dr Anna Akello, Dr Anne Fleming and Dr Robin Johnson, really giving us that great sense of the impact and the important work that is done by the Australian Centre for International Agriculture Research beyond our borders. So thank you to all of them for contributing to Work With Purpose. You will know now that IPA ACT is a partner of the GovComs Festival, which is part of the OECD's Government Aftershock Global Dialogue. It is on November the 17th and it will be going for 24 hours where we will publish an enormous amount of content about the impact of COVID-19 on the way government is communicating both internally and externally. We also have great support from Griffith University who will be running a 24-hour education program. If you are interested in participating, please Google GovComs Festival and please register your interest so you can be involved in this important festival. In terms of Work With Purpose, if you would like to recommend or share or leave a review, it does help us to be found. And we are so grateful for the audiences who turn up each week in such big numbers to support this important program about the important work of the Australian Public Service. A big thanks, as always, to my friends at IPA ACT, also to the content group team and to the Australian Public Service Commission. Without the support of those organisations, this program would not happen. So thank you very much for coming back once again to listen to Work With Purpose. We'll be back at the same time next week, but for the moment, it's 
Bye for now.